All right, I think that's all I have for announcements this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, please go ahead and open them with me to Genesis chapter 18 today. Genesis chapter 18. And as we, as we go, are going to read this, this lengthy passage of Scripture, uh, let us do so as the community of Christ aware that these are the very words of God to us. Uh, he's speaking to us right now. And these words are for our good and for our joy. Here's what it says, Genesis chapter 18, verse 1. And the Lord appeared to him, Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and young and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and he set it before them and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son." But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not... I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. 
Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. So suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will, will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again, he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry. I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Amen. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. What, what are the characteristics of true friendship in your life? If, if you want to evaluate whether you have real friends in your life or not, what do you look for? Do you look for the quantity of time spent together? Do you look for, for gifts that are given to each other? A true friend always brings Starbucks with them, right? Do you look for memories that are shared with each other? Do you look for, for strength of conversation between each other? What, what makes for a healthy relationship, in your opinion? Folks, the fact is that we all have things that we look for to determine whether our friendships or even our, our marriages and our relationships of all kinds are strong or not. Th things that can be seen as evidence of a strong relationship. How about in our relationship with God? What, what is that relationship supposed to look like? Are there markers? Are there characteristics that are supposed to be, to be present in our relationship with God to know that it is healthy? Folks, Genesis chapter 18 has been given to us as a way for us to evaluate our relationship with God and what it is supposed to look like. Well, what we see here is that, that there are ways, that there are characteristics that are supposed to mark those that are in a covenant relationship with God. See, Genesis chapters 12 to 17 have been all about God initiating a covenant relationship with Abraham. The Lord has chosen Abraham and he has established a relationship with him. But now that that relationship has begun, what is it supposed to look like moving forward? Well, Genesis chapters 18 to 22 and Genesis chapters 18 and 19 in particular are supposed to show us what a healthy relationship with God looks like. I don't know if you know this or not, but, but Genesis chapter 19, which we'll look at next week, is not a happy text of Scripture. In Genesis chapter 19, we see a lot of sin and corruption and, and great judgment against God. It is a low point in this book, but, but Genesis 19 is not supposed to stand alone. No, Genesis 19 is supposed to remain connected to Genesis 18 because both of these chapters create for us a contrast. These two chapters provide a contrast between what God's relationship is like with those who are in a covenant relationship with him and what his relationship is like with those who are not in a covenant relationship with him. And the difference between them both could not be more stark. To be outside of God's covenant, as we will see next week, is to be under the wrath of the judgment of God. But to be a part of the covenant is to be in a healthy, fruitful relationship with God himself. Listen, 
It is actually to even be called a friend of God. Did you know this about Abraham? Abraham is the only person in the Old Testament who is spoken of as being a friend of God. Isn't that amazing? He's called a friend of God. James in James chapter 2 says it this way. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. Abraham was called a friend. And Genesis chapter 18, perhaps more than anywhere else in the narrative of Abraham's life, reveals what this friendship between Abraham and God looked like. Church, I was, I was personally affected this week when I was noting all of the words that, that scholars and commentators use to, to try to capture God's relationship with Abraham. Words like, like intimacy, knowledge, friendship, partnership, trust, care, love, camaraderie. All of these words are words that are used to speak of real relationships and they're spoken of about God and Abraham. Church, this sort of friendship with God is also available to us this morning. This passage is meant to challenge and encourage us to consider what our relationship with God looks like. Here's the main idea of our message this morning. God's grace establishes rich and refreshing relationship with his people. God's grace establishes rich and refreshing relationship with his people. And so here's the question for us this morning. What does it look like to have a rich and refreshing relationship with God himself? Well, there are four things from this text that, that wonderfully characterize those who are in relationship with God. Number one, rich hospitality. Number two, joyful confidence. Number three, righteous compassion. And number four, bold prayer. Those are our four points. Point number one, rich hospitality. When, when you have a close friend, you, you, you are eager to spend time with them, aren't you? And you're eager to be a blessing to them. You, you're eager to share what you have with them. That's part of what real friendship is all about. And that's what we see in this text. Look, look at verses 1 and 2. It says that as Abraham was sitting by the door of his tent, he's likely taking a nap because it's, it's the heat of the day, he, he looks up and he sees three men out in front of him. And then, and then look at what it says. It says, when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, oh Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. This is very interesting. Notice Abraham's eagerness. Now, now, being very hospitable even to strangers was not uncommon in that day, but, but this seems to highlight it in a particular way. To, to run to these guests, to bow to them, to be so eager to welcome them in seems to be highlighted in, in a particular way. Patriarchs in that day, men of honor and, and distinction, would not ordinarily run. That was not a way to show uh, honor or, or position. And so this highlights Abraham's eagerness. It seems that Abraham sensed that there was something important about these three men out in front of him. It even seems that he sensed that one of them was even God himself in physical form. And so notice what he does. He invites them to stay. Now, he doesn't immediately promise them a large feast. Verse 4 says that he just offers a little water and a morsel of bread. A Abraham downplays what he's about to do so that his guests won't decline his generous hospitality or feel like they are presuming upon him. But he intends to do so much more than what he says here. 
Because look at what it says next, verse 6. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. Folks, three seas of flour is almost two gallons of flour. That, that's going to make a lot of bread. And Abraham doesn't stop there. He, he runs and he finds a calf and he has it prepared and he finds curds and milk. And he lays out what is no less than a lavish feast for these three guests. And then it says that he stands back in respect and just watches them eat. He doesn't even participate. He does all of this so quickly, so eagerly. Abraham jumps at the opportunity to give of himself and of his resources to the Lord in this way. Folks, do you see what this text is doing for us? As Moses writes this account, he, he wants us as the church to consider how appropriate this response of Abraham is to the Lord, right? Genesis chapters 12 to 17 should be in our minds as we read this. Moses wants us to say as we read this, yes, yes, that is exactly how someone should respond who has been welcomed into relationship with Yahweh. Yes, Abraham, that's how it should look. God has befriended Abraham. God has been so hospitable, so generous, and so it is so right and good for us to respond, not, not with just a generic word of thanks, not just with a, a small word of appreciation, but with lavish generosity back to him. To receive the generosity of God's grace is to then respond with the generosity of our lives, church. Folks, no, notice the contrast as well between this and chapter 19. When we get to chapter 19, we will see that those in Sodom and Gomorrah, those who are outside of the covenant of grace, they are grossly inhospitable. They are selfish and stingy and unloving and unkind. But for those who have been given the riches of God's grace and favor, for those who are, who are in a relationship with him, we are to respond with eager, excited, lavish generosity right back to him. Church, as we read this account, we are supposed to ask the question, what about me? What, what about me? Is this characteristic of my relationship with God, particularly because of the gospel and the work of God the Son by his grace? Do I still run to meet the Lord? Do I run to fellowship with him? Church, church this text is supposed to lead us to ask the question, are we lavish in our relationship with God and with our obedience, or are we stingy? And you know what? A really good way to track whether we are generous and hospitable to God is to ask whether we are generous and hospitable to other people. In Hebrews, in the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1, the writer says this. He says, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. The writer of Hebrews is talking about Genesis 18. He's making the point that like Abraham, one of the first ways that we show our identity and our love and our devotion to King Jesus is by being generous, by showing hospitality to those around us. And so I amend Jason's prayer earlier. Church, may this be characteristic of who we are as a church family. May we be a, a generous and hospitable church, generous in our devotion to God, generous in our hospitality 
reality to those around us. May we run towards the needs of service all around us. May we run to guests in this room who are with us for the first time. Maybe don't run at them. That probably will make them uncomfortable. But greet them warmly. May we be so eager to serve. May we run to opportunities to to open our homes and to break bread with each other. May we be a church, Redeemer Fellowship, that uses our time and our energy and our resources and our homes and our, and our pantries and our entire existence to serve God and to serve those around us. Even as he has served us, may we go and serve him. Those who are in relationship with God practice rich hospitality. Now the second marker of what friendship with God looks like Point number two, joyful confidence. You know, as you read this account at first, you might be tempted to wonder whether our friendship with God is a little bit lopsided, right? Abraham is the one that is giving and giving, and the Lord is just just receiving. And you might ask the question, well, is that what friendship with God looks like? Maybe you have a view of Christianity like this, that, that God just wants us to give, 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 give all the time, and he never gives anything in return. Do you view God like that friend that always comes over to your house, opens the fridge, eats all your food, and never gives anything back? Is that who God is? Well, no, not not at all. As we have already said, Genesis chapters 12 to 17 should be in our minds as we read about Abraham's generosity back to God. God was the one who was generous first. That's very clear in the context. But we also see God's movement and and activity of friendship towards us in this text as well. Look at verse 9. It says, They said to him, Where is Sarah your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah your wife shall have a son. Folks, notice how thoughtful the Lord is here. He's not just talking to Abraham any longer. No, he's also talking indirectly to Sarah who's in the tent. God God had given his promises to Abraham back in chapter 17. But in this moment, he's letting Sarah in on the promise. He says, by this time next year, it's finally going to come about. He's wanting to care for her in this moment by telling her that the time is drawing near. But now, as we all might imagine, Sarah has a hard time believing what he says. It says explicitly in verse 12 that she actually laughs at what he says. And the text even legitimizes her laughter a little bit. It says, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. Sarah knows that she has long passed the childbearing years. She says of herself in this verse, after I am worn out, my Lord, and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? She, she rightly doesn't view herself favorably in this moment. And it's understandable because from a human perspective, Sarah, Sarah has good reason to laugh. One commentator says it this way. He says, these remarks of Sarah's show us the basis of her doubts. She laughed not out of cocky arrogance, but because a life of long disappointment had taught her not to clutch at straws. Hopelessness, not pride, underlay her unbelief. She's just hopeless. She has nothing, no hope to cling on to anymore. Her life has not been easy. It's been one disappointment after another, year after year. She doesn't have any strength to believe anymore. 
Church, some of you can relate to Sarah this morning. Some of you can relate to her. Your life has been so filled with sorrow that to believe in God's promises feels like clutching at straws to you. You hear God's promises in his word and it makes you want to laugh because they seem so impossible in your life. Maybe that's a physical ailment. Maybe that's a difficult relationship or a difficult marriage or some other trial that just perseveres in your life. But look at how thoughtful God is to Sarah and to you this morning. He actually highlights Sarah's laughter. Now, now that might seem like a cruel thing to do. Why would God highlight this moment of unbelief for Sarah? But for God to highlight her, her laughter is actually the way that God wants to give joyful confidence and joyful assurance to her. To her. See, we, we see the word laughter used four times in quick succession. It says, so Sarah laughed. God said, why did Sarah laugh? Sarah denied it and said, I did not laugh. But he said, no, you did laugh. All of this connects back to Genesis chapter 17, where God said to Abraham that Sarah would have a son and that she would call his name Isaac. Do you know what the name Isaac means? It means laughter. And so there's this this thread of laughter being sown throughout these, these chapters. Later on in chapter 21, when Isaac is finally born to Sarah, Sarah says, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. Do you see what God is doing? God is wanting Sarah to remember this moment of unbelief because when he eventually proves himself faithful to her, it is going to bring about all kinds of of joyful confidence and assurance that he was present the whole time. She's going to remember her laughter of unbelief and it's going to transition to a laughter of praise because God is going to prove himself faithful to her. Church, listen. For those who are in relationship with God through the gospel, we can have this sort of joyful confidence as well. You may not be able to see exactly how God is going to answer your many prayers, but you can know with joyful confidence that he is going to accomplish his salvation in your life. He may not answer your prayer exactly as you hope that he will, but listen, friend, there's a day coming when you are going to laugh in disbelief at how faithful and how wise and how good and how right he was and how he worked all things, even the most difficult things in your life, together for his good. Those who are friends of Yahweh, those who are in covenant relationship with him, have a joyful confidence in his will and in his purposes, even when it makes no sense. Friends, that brings us to our third marker of friendship this morning. Those who are in friendship with God, point number three, have righteous compassion. Righteous compassion. Look look at verse 16. It says, Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. Verse 17. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? We know that God is on his way to Sodom to judge Sodom for their many sins. Verse 20 says that the outcry against Sodom is great. Their sin is very grave. God's judgment is coming. But what we need to notice here is how eager God is to invite Abraham into his plan and into his purposes. He says, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? 
The, the Lord is saying, I, I'm in a covenant relationship with this man. Why would I leave him out on the, on the outside of this decision? And what we see here is that, that God invites Abraham into what he is doing because he has called Abraham and his descendants to be a part of what he's doing throughout the world and to all nations. God invites Abraham to, to carry this burden with him. He wants Abraham, who is, who is called to be a blessing to the nations, to feel the weight of God's judgment against the nations. If Abraham's called to bless he needs to be fully aware of the need for that blessing. He needs to be aware of the curse that the nations are under, and that will compel him to intercede and to work on their behalf. In this moment, God, God calls Abraham to step into the role of prophet and, and priest, to step into the role of being one who sees the needs of the world and feels the burden of them on his own shoulders. Friends, this is actually beautiful. Think about what an expression of friendship and partnership this is for God to invite this man into his mission. Listen, aren't the best friendships out there the ones where we are united around a common idea or theme, right? Those, those are the most enjoyable friendships, whether it's, it's around the Eagles, go Eagles, we can be friends, whether it's a, a, a sport or a hobby or a political conversation, the best friendships are those that, that have a single-mindedness to them and they have a shared mission about them. Church, God is saying through this text that to be in covenant relationship with him, to be a friend of God, means that you are invited into the inner circle. You are on the same mission as and you are to share the same mission with God himself. What a place of, of honor and privilege. What, what a place of, of camaraderie and partnership. Abram's invited to be on mission with God. That's extraordinary. Now, we have to ask the question, what, what is this mission that God is inviting Abraham into? Well, we see what the mission is in verse 19. It says, For I have chosen him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Those words, righteousness and justice, those words speak of God's heart for this world, don't they? Those are the very words that many of the prophets later in Scripture, when they would use, when they wanted to call God's people to live more fully for God. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 3 says, To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to God than sacrifice. Righteousness and justice matters to God. One commentator said this about this text. He said, Righteousness here portrays a way of living in community that promotes the life of all of its members, a life-promoting social order in recognition of God's rule. A righteous person rightly orders community, and a just person restores broken community, especially by punishing oppressors and delivering the oppressed. To, to promote righteousness and justice is to support social order and care, and it is to promote the way of the Lord. Folks, Genesis chapter 18 is really the first place in Scripture where we feel the burden of social justice issues being put upon us by God. The, the call and the burden from God to his people to be, a, to be a physical means of grace to the world around us, to be a people who, who take action for the sake of others around them and not just for themselves. Now listen, please. 
please listen. Social justice issues are so difficult to talk about right now. They are such a big category in our day. How much social justice should the church do? How much should we not do? Are social justice issues to be central to who we are or not? Is our primary responsibility to care for the poor and the widow and to speak for the defenseless and to fight for justice in all forms in our world? Well, to some degree, church, the answer to that is yes. Now, there are many different ways that we can do that. The primary way for the church to pursue social justice is to simply continue to preach the good news of the gospel. The gospel is the greatest need that this world has, and so we must remain faithful to the gospel as center, to Christ as center. But listen, A biblical study of these words, righteousness and justice, a biblical study of the the way of the Lord must also lead us all to take action in social issues in our day as well. This is a primary way that we express relationship and unity with God. We join him in his mission. We become an advocate for the broken and the hurting. We, We stand against injustice in our day. We fight for the oppressed, even as James says, that true religion is to care for the orphan and the widow in their affliction. Now listen, I know that for some of us in this room, to talk about social justice issues within the church is to make us cringe. It's so uncomfortable, and I, I get it. I really do. Many churches have done this very poorly. They have made the social just, justice issues of our day the center of who they are. The, the hub of the wheel of ministry has become those social justice and cultural issues, and that's not good. Jesus must remain the center. The gospel must be the hub of the wheel. But listen, it remains to be said, if you want to be a biblical Christian, You must see and believe and accept that God wants you to care greatly about the social issues of your day. You you must think actively about how you can stand for justice whenever and however you can. Your first instinct as a Christian must not be, okay, well, how are these social justice issues that are being promoted playing into a liberal ideology? What what slippery slope are we on if we consider these things? No. No. Our first response should be, is there really some form of injustice? And is there an opportunity to love those around us? That's the first response. Is there some way that I as a Christian can remain committed to Christ alone while also valuing and legitimizing and pursuing the need for greater righteousness and justice in the world around me? You know, the contrast to this again in chapter 19 when the men of Sodom don't care anything for righteousness and justice, that is what it is to be outside of the covenant relationship with God. But when you are a, in a relationship with God, you begin to care about what God cares about. Church, the same is true for us. And what, what an honor it is, what a privilege. God is calling us to join him in his work of righteousness and justice. We are to carry the burden for this world around us through evangelism, through just preaching Christ again and again and again, through church life and community and fellowship, through serving our community in practical ways, through having a heart for and taking action on behalf of the oppressed and helpless. We are to partner with God in this work. And as we do, he will use us mightily and it will bring him great glory. What what an honored place to be. 
That's exactly what we see here with Abraham. And that brings us to our fourth and to our final marker of friendship with God and what it looks like. Point number four, bold prayer. Bold prayer. Folks, the, the remainder of this chapter, verses 22 down to 33, it's, it's almost shocking to read for us. Now, in a good way, it's shocking. But, but look, look at verse 22, for example. It says, so the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. What is going on? God is, is going to move in his justice towards judging Sodom and Gomorrah, but it says Abraham still stood before him. You kind of get this picture in your, your mind of these three men moving towards Sodom, Abraham standing behind them, two of them go forward, the angels, to do the work of the Lord, but Abraham almost stops and says, hold on, Lord, I want to have a talk with you. I want to have a conversation. How bold. This seems inappropriate. It seems audacious to us, but listen, in this moment, Abraham is carrying out his role exactly as God intended him to. He's filling the role of prophet. God doesn't rebuke him in this moment in any way. He is carrying the burden of God's heart for the nations. God's heart to see many be saved. And so he speaks to God about what he is doing. He even begins to wrestle with God. Church, this is what friendship with God looks like. This is what it is to be in a covenant relationship with Yahweh. We have the ability through his grace and goodness through the gospel to speak boldly to him. Now, now we must do this in humility. Please notice Abraham's words in verse 27. He says, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. He knows who he is before God. He knows that he is dust. He knows that he is the creature speaking to the creator. But that doesn't stop him from speaking and from speaking very boldly to God Almighty. Abraham is becoming here a man of, of prayer and dependence. He's, he's realizing that because of the covenant that God has made with him, he now has free access to God Almighty at all times. He can speak freely. He can speak boldly. Church, don't you kind of want to cringe when you read this for the first time? How Abraham speaks to God here seems inappropriate. But for this to seem inappropriate to us, as it did to me this week, it reveals that we do not have a right understanding of our relationship with God. He wants this from us. Through Christ, he makes this possible for us. We have been given access as creatures, as his people, to come boldly into the throne room, to speak freely, to pray earnestly. This is a mark of true relationship with God. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's what prayer is. Prayer is, is to have so much confidence in our relationship with God through Christ that we are able to speak boldly about his heart for us and about his heart for the world. He invites us to speak directly and even to challenge his direction. N notice, notice that Abraham is not saying that it is wrong for God to judge Sodom. Abraham knows that God's justice must punish sin. But Abraham also knows about God's heart of compassion in God's heart of mercy. And so he prays and he asks God to find every way possible to express that heart of mercy. Church, Redeemer Fellowship, might this be us? 
What would the church be today if we had more men and women who were willing, like verse 22 says, to stand before the Lord in humility but in boldness, to pray, to plead with him, to ask him to make his grace and mercy known in their lives and in this world. Clearly, clearly God is willing Clearly God is eager to save those who would turn to him, even as Abraham pleads from from 50 to 45 to 40 to 30 to 10. God is willing the entire time to save those that would come to him. That doesn't stop his justice from being carried out, but it clearly demonstrates how willing he is to save. Church, what might God do in our day? What might he do in our church if we stood before him in this way? What might he do if we became in greater and greater ways a praying church? Praying men and women, praying students, praying husbands, praying wives, praying families. What would happen? What could God do if we started gathering on Wednesday mornings in mass to pray for his will to be done as we pray in fellowship groups, as we pray as friends, as we pray as couples? Church, may we be a praying church. May we fill the role of prophet and priest. May we carry the the burden of this world on our hearts and our souls. And may we pray to God to have mercy on this world and to make his great salvation known to the ends of the world. Who knows? Who knows how those prayers might cause God's blessing to be known in our lives and throughout the nations? Those who are friends of God pray boldly to God. Folks, these are the four markers of Abraham's friendship with God as seen in this text, rich hospitality, joyful confidence, righteous compassion, and bold prayer. These make for a beautiful picture of what friendship with God looks like. But, but maybe you feel like you have failed in these things. Maybe you've not been a good friend. Maybe as you read this text, you realize very quickly, oh, I am, I am no Abraham. Thanks for the example, but I'm not in that place. I don't rush to give my life and my time and my energy to God. I'm not that generous. I'm not that hospitable. I I don't have joyful confidence in God's plan despite my difficult circumstances. I don't want to, to find the social issues in my day and seek to meet them. I don't pray in any way like I should. Maybe like me, you realize, wow, I I'm a terrible friend. My life does not reflect the characteristics of what a healthy relationship with God is. Friend, this is all of us. We have all failed in this. And so the question is, where does that leave us? Church, there's good news for us this morning. There's good news because even though we are not faithful friends, God is the most faithful friend. In fact, Romans chapter 5 says that even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It says that while we were his enemies, Christ reconciled, he restored our relationship back to God, even though we had screwed it up royally. There's great news for us this morning, church. God did not allow your pride to get in the way of the friendship that he wanted to have with you. No, he sent his son into this world to live for you, to die for you, and to heal your relationship with God himself. Do you you know what the main accusation that was laid against Jesus was when he was on 
this earth, when he was walking among us, what the Pharisees accused him of, what did they say? Oh, he's a friend of sinners. He's a friend of sinners. That, that's what they accused him of. They said, this rabbi, this, this teacher, he seems good, but oh, look at who he's hanging out with, the tax collectors, the sinners, the prostitutes. He's a friend of sinners. You know, Abraham is the only person in the Old Testament that God ate a meal with. There are other meals that are prepared, but they're usually just offered up as sacrifice. Abraham's the only one that God actually eats a meal with. But now Jesus has come. The Son of God comes into this world and he eats with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. He breaks bread with the most terrible friends, friends like you and me. Why? Because he wanted to restore a relationship back to God. Listen to these words from Christ himself in the Gospel of John. He says, This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. This is who Jesus is, church. He is your friend this morning. Wherever you are today, he is your support. He is your companion. He is your partner in life, in ministry. He is committed to you, no matter how many other friends fall out of your world. And he has given you the grace through the work of the gospel and his spirit for you to be a faithful friend as well. As weak as you feel in your devotion to God, Jesus says this, he says, I'm going to enable you to be a faithful friend. He says, I who was so generous and so hospitable, I who had all the joyful confidence in God's plan, even when it meant I had to go to the cross, I who was the perfect example of social justice and mercy, I who had a flawless prayer life with my Father, I am now going to enable you to be a faithful friend as well. My spirit is going to breathe on you. I'm going to soften your heart. I'm going to make you a new creation, and you are going to have all that you need to value this relationship, not just for a little while, but for all eternity. This is what Jesus has done for us. Church, God's grace establishes rich and refreshing relationship with his people. And so may we, Redeemer Fellowship, continue to rest in our faithful friend. And may we live generously for our faithful friend. Let's pray.